Welcome to episode 16 of Victorian Scribblers. Today we're going to be looking at Mary Shelley's writing. Now I say today I am recording this at a later time because my vocals did not save for the first maybe half of this episode. This is probably the best episode for that to happen because we did kind of take it in two halves so hopefully your listening experience won't be interrupted too much by that but just be aware that sometimes it might sound like Courtney's talking to herself just imagine me making some dad joke on the other side but with that being said what we're going to do today is read two different excerpts of Mary Shelley's writing so first Courtney will read an excerpt of her non-fiction and then I will come in with some fiction Uh, Without further ado, let's get started. This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Just to kind of recap on her writing process, During Percy's lifetime, Mary's writing process was highly collaborative and uh, sort of all-consuming, like it's the way that they bonded. So um, after Percy's death, we don't know that much about her writing process except that she was writing basically all of the time. She wrote pretty rapidly. Uh, She did lots of research, and she tended to write in the mornings most. Um, But yeah, other than that, Today we're focusing on uh, the products of that writing in the form of uh, a, a piece of nonfiction and a piece of fiction. Um, and because we talked about it so much, we thought we would bring you an excerpt from her A History of a Six Weeks Tour, which is a fictionalized rendering of her elopement with Percy um, for the nonfiction piece. And we're also going to read The Mortal Immortal, which is a short story that she wrote and published in 1833. A good example of her sci-fi outside of Frankenstein. Okay, so let's dive into some writing, some of Mary Shelley's writing. So the piece of History of a Six Weeks Tour that I'm reading for you today um, is the Switzerland piece, partly because I think I'll be better at pronouncing Swiss names, but that might be complete hubris. We'll find out. (laughs) Um, But I just thought I would read the preface, just quickly before I dived into that piece.
History of a Six Weeks Tour. It is now nearly three years since this journey took place, and the journal that I then kept was not very copious, but I have so often talked over the incidents that befell us and attempted to describe the scenery through which we passed that I think few occurrences of any interest will be omitted. We left London July 28, 1814, on a hotter day than has been known in this climate for many years. I am not a good traveler, and this heat agreed very ill with me. Till arriving at Dover, I was refreshed by a sea bath. As we very much wished to cross the channel with all possible speed, we would not wait for the packet of the following day, it being then about four in the afternoon. But hiring a small boat, resolved to make the passage the same evening, the seaman promising us a voyage of two hours. Um, and she goes on to describe how violent the how violent and stormy the crossing was. So if that sets the stage, now let's turn to the Switzerland portion of this history. Switzerland. On passing the French barrier, a surprising difference may be observed between the opposite nations that inhabit either side. The Swiss cottages are much cleaner and neater, and the inhabitants exhibit the same contrast. The Swiss women wear a great deal of white linen, and their whole dress is always perfectly clean. This superior cleanliness is chiefly produced by the difference of religion. Travelers in Germany remark the same contrast between the Protestant and Catholic towns, although they be but a few leagues separate. The scenery of this day's journey was divine, exhibiting piney mountains, barren rocks, and spots of verdure surpassing imagination. After descending for nearly a league between lofty rocks, covered with pines, and interspersed with green glades, where the grass is short and soft and beautifully verdant, we arrived at the village of St. Sulpice. The mule had latterly become very lame, and the man so disobliging that we determined to engage a horse for the remainder of the way. Our voiture had anticipated us, without in the least intimating his intention. He had determined to leave us at this village and taken measures to that effect. The man we now engaged was a Swiss, a cottager of the better class, who was proud of his mountains and his country. Pointing to the glades that were interspersed among the woods, he informed us that they were very beautiful and were excellent pasture, that the cows thrived there and consequently produced excellent milk, from which the best cheese and butter in the world were made. The mountains after St. Sulpice became loftier and more beautiful. We passed through a narrow valley between two ranges of mountains, clothed with forests, at the bottom of which flowed a river, from whose narrow bed on either side the boundaries of the vale arose precipitously. The road lay about halfway up the mountain, which formed one of the sides, and we saw the overhanging rocks above us and below, enormous pines, and the river, not to be perceived but from its reflection of the light of heaven, far beneath. The mountains of this beautiful ravine are so little asunder that in teepee of war with France, an iron chain is thrown across it. Two leagues from Nufachel, we saw the Alps. Range after range of black mountains are seen extending one before the other, and far behind all, towering above every feature of the scene, the snowy Alps. They were an hundred miles distant, but reached so high in the heavens that they look like those accumulated clouds of dazzling white that arrange themselves on the horizon during summer. 
Their immensity staggers the imagination and so far surpasses all conception that it requires an effort of the understanding to believe that they indeed form a part of the earth. From this point, we descended to Neuchâtel, which is situated in a narrow plain between the mountains and its immense lake and presents no additional aspect of peculiar interest. We remained the following day at this town, occupied in a consideration of the step it would now be advisable for us to take. The money we had brought with us from Paris was nearly exhausted, but we obtained about 38 pounds in silver upon discount from one of the bankers of the city, and with this we resolved to journey toward the Lake of Uri, and seek in that romantic and interesting country some cottage where we might dwell in peace and solitude. Such were our dreams, which we should probably have realized had it not been for the deficiency of that indispensable article, money which obliged us to return to England. A Swiss whom Shelley met at the post office kindly interested himself in our affairs and assisted us to hire a voucher to convey us to Luzerne, the principal town of the lake of that name, which is connected with the lake of Uri. The journey to this place occupied rather more than two days. The country was flat and dull, and, excepting that we now and then caught a glimpse of the divine Alps, there was nothing in it to interest us. Lucerne promised better things, and as soon as we arrived, August 23rd, we hired a boat with which we proposed to coast the lake until we should meet with some suitable habitation, or perhaps even going to Altorf, cross Mont St. Gothard, and seek in the warm climate of the country to the south of the Alps an air more salubrious and a temperature better fitted for the precarious state of Shelley's health than the bleak region to the north. The Lake of Lucerne is encompassed on all sides by high mountains that rise abruptly from the water. Sometimes their bare fronts descend perpendicularly and cast a black shade upon the waves. Sometimes they are covered with thick wood, whose dark foliage is interspersed by the brown bare crags on which the trees have taken root. In every part where a glade shows itself in the forest, it appears cultivated, and cottages peep from among the woods. The most luxuriant islands rocky and covered with moss and bending trees, are sprinkled over the lake. Most of these are decorated by the figure of a saint in wretched waxwork. The direction of this lake extends at first from east to west, then, turning a right angle, it lies from north to south. This latter part is distinguished in name from the other and is called the Lake of Uri. The former part is also nearly divided midway, where the jutting land almost meets and its craggy sides cast a deep shadow on the little strait through which you pass. The summits of several of the mountains that enclose the lake to the south are covered by eternal glaciers. Of one of these, opposite Brunin, they tell the story of a priest and his mistress, who, flying from persecution, inhabited a cottage at the foot of the snows. One winter night an avalanche overwhelmed them, but their plaintive voices are still heard in stormy nights, calling for succor from the peasants. Brunin is situated on the northern side of the angle which the lake makes, forming the extremity of the Lake of Lucerne. Here we rested for the night and dismissed our boatmen. Nothing could be more magnificent than the view from this spot. The high mountains encompassed us, darkening the waters. At a distance on the shores of Uri we could perceive the chapel of Tell, and this was the village where he matured the conspiracy which was to overthrow the tyrant of his country. And indeed, this lovely lake... These sublime mountains and wild forests seemed a fit cradle for a mind aspiring to high adventure and heroic deeds. Yet we saw no glimpse of his spirit and his present countrymen. The Swiss appeared to us then, 
and experience has confirmed our opinion, a people slow of comprehension and of action. But habit has made them unfit for slavery, and they would, I have little doubt, make a brave defense against any invader of their freedom. Such were our reflections, and we remained until late in the evening on the shores of the lake, conversing, enjoying the rising breeze, and contemplating with feelings of exquisite delight the divine objects that surrounded us. The following day was spent in a consideration of our circumstances and in contemplation of the scene around us. A furious vent d'Italie, south wind, tore up the lake, making immense waves and carrying the water in a whirlwind high in the air when it fell like heavy rain into the lake. The waves broke with a tremendous noise on the rocky shores. This conflict continued during the whole day, but it became calmer toward the evening. Shelley and I walked on the banks, and sitting on a rude pier, Shelley read aloud the account of the siege of Jerusalem from Tacitus. In the meantime, we endeavored to find an habitation, but could only procure two unfurnished rooms in an ugly big house called the Chateau. These we hired at a guinea a month, had beds moved into them, and the next day took possession. But it was a wretched place, with no comfort or convenience. It was with difficulty that we could get any food prepared. As it was cold and rainy, we ordered a fire. They lighted an immense stove which occupied a corner of the room. It was long before it heated, and when hot, the warmth was so unwholesome that we were obliged to throw open our windows to prevent a kind of suffocation. Added to this, there was but one person in Brunnen who could speak French, a barbarous kind of German being the language of this part of Switzerland. It was with difficulty, therefore, that we could get our most ordinary wants supplied. These immediate inconveniences led us to a more serious consideration of our situation. The 28 pounds which we possessed was all the money that we could count upon with any certainty until the following December. Shelley's presence in London was absolutely necessary for the procuring any further supply. What were we to do? We would soon be reduced to absolute want. Thus, after balancing the various topics that offered themselves for discussion, we resolved to return to England. Having formed this resolution, we had not a moment for delay. Our little store was sensibly decreasing, and 28 pounds could hardly appear sufficient for so long a journey. It had cost us 60 to cross France from Paris to Neufchatel, but we now resolved on a more economical mode of traveling. Water conveyances are always the cheapest, and fortunately we were so situated that by taking advantage of the rivers of the Rus and the Rhine, we could reach England without traveling a league on land. This was our plan. We should travel 800 miles, and was this possible for so small a sum? But there was no other alternative, and indeed Shelley only knew how very little we had to depend upon. We departed the next morning for the town of Lucerne. It rained violently during the first part of our voyage, but toward its conclusion the sky became clear and the sunbeams dried and cheered us. We saw again, and for the last time, the rocky shores of this beautiful lake, its verdant isles and snow-capped mountains. We landed at Lucerne and remained in that town the following night and the next morning, August 28th, departed in the diligence Peru for Laufenburg, a town on the Rhine, where the falls of that river prevented the same vessel from proceeding any further. Our companions in this voyage were of the meanest class, smoked prodigiously, and were exceedingly disgusting. After having landed for refreshment in the middle of the day, we found on a return to the boat that our former seats were occupied. 
we took others. When the original possessors angrily and almost with violence insisted upon our leaving them. Their brutal rudeness to us, who did not understand their language, provoked Shelley to knock one of the foremost down. He did not return the blow, but continued his vociferations until the boatman interfered and provided us with other seats. The ruse is exceedingly rapid, and we descended several falls, one more than eight feet. There is something very delicious in the sensation, when at one moment you are on top of a fall of water, and before the second has expired you are at the bottom, still rushing on with the impulse which the descent has given. The waters of the Rhine are blue, those of the Rus are of a deep green. I should think that there must be something in the beds of these rivers, and the accidents of the banks and sky cannot alone cause this difference. Sleeping at Dettingen, we arrived the next morning at Laufenburg, where we engaged a small canoe to convey us to Mumph. I give these boats this Indian appellation, as they were of the rudest construction, long, narrow, and flat-bottomed. They consisted merely of straight pieces of deal board, unpainted, and nailed together with so little care that the water constantly poured in at the crevices, and the boat perpetually required emptying. The river was rapid and sped swiftly, breaking as it passed on innumerable rocks just covered by the water. It was a sight of some dread to see our frail boat winding among the eddies of the rocks, which it was death to touch, and when the slightest inclination to one side would instantly have overset it. We could not procure a boat at Mumph, and we thought ourselves lucky in meeting with a return cabriolet to Rheinfelden, but our good fortune was of short duration, about a league from Mumph, the cabriolet broke down, and we were obliged to proceed on foot. Fortunately, we were overtaken by some Swiss soldiers, who were discharged and returning home, who carried our box for us as far as Rheinfelden, when we were directed to proceed a league farther to a village, where boats were commonly hired. Here, although not without some difficulty, we procured a boat for Basel, and proceeded down a swift river while evening came on and the air was bleak and comfortless. Our voyage was, however, short, and we arrived at the place of our destination by six in the evening. Did you hear the bit... <laughs> So there's a part that I want to talk about because my brain just did like a my brain just did like a record screeching sound when I read this part. Um, let me see if I can find it again. She writes, the Swiss appeared to us then and experience has confirmed our opinion a people slow of comprehension and of action, but habit has made them unfit for slavery and they would, I have little doubt, make a brave defense against any invader of their freedom. Uh, yeah. That's when my brain made a record screeching sound. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so in parts, I want to say part two, episode 15, part two, we talked a little bit about how uh, they were really prejudiced against the Swiss and how that was not a good look on them. Uh, but this takes it a whole step further into something pretty offensive, which I had not expected coming. Yeah. Um, that is kind of gross, I think. Um, so the gist is, if I'm reading this correctly, that they're not intelligent, but they're too stubborn. 
that's my interpretation of the habit has made them unfit for slavery, but Yeah, too stubborn or too like chill, <laughs> slow. Yeah. But like that's what a repugnant suggestion that like they're not they're not even good enough to be slaves, but that like to even bring slavery into the question at all. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, I think this is a really um, chilling example of the fact that a lot of travel literature, especially in this period, is like innately connected to colonialism, right? And to the to the thought that, uh, uh, I guess, to ethnocentrism, right? The the thought that one nation is better inherently than others. Yeah, there's something about travel literature that kind of inherently sets it up as. Um, a like self other situation i mean i'm thinking because i'm writing about this at the moment but about domestic manners of the americans and yeah there is this temptation especially when you're well in that situation it's especially clear because it's writing about the new world from the old um Mm -hmm. to depict people as, as savages but yeah i think it's not necessarily just a transatlantic experience. Yeah, definitely not. Although that also crops up in here. I don't know if, um, so listeners, we were having some technical difficulties this morning, but um, at one point uh, she writes that um, they have this really bad boat uh, that they've managed to rent that's really leaky and not very pretty. Um, And she decides to call it a canoe and explains that it's because it's like basically... Uh, what is the word she uses rudely crafted or something like that so there's like another aspect of she's clearly never seen an actual canoe made by native americans and is having like her her prejudice is showing uh quite a lot so just because the form really encourages this sort of thinking doesn't mean we're excusing uh mary shelley from like the fact that she's being a racist here in a lot of ways like both are true the form itself tends to really sort of germinate these sorts of expressions but also like her own prejudices showing too even though she is as you'll have heard in our earlier episodes very progressive in lots of ways yeah the context that we bring up about travel literature is an explanation and not an excuse so yes a lot of people were doing this but that doesn't make it okay Right. Yeah. So if you want to read the rest of this, it's available both on Project Gutenberg and uh, at the University of Adelaide's um, ebooks webpage. So we'll put links to those um, if you want to do some further reading. But for now, let's move on to some fiction.
Okay, so as Courtney said, we've picked this work of fiction because it's an example of Mary Shelley's science fiction type writing that isn't Frankenstein. So it's an interesting example and proves that she's kind of shouldn't be defined by this one work. Now, I want to preface this by saying that I live in an attic. It is currently October in England. You may hear some rain. Let's call that atmospheric. I think it's going to be fitting for the story. So with that caveat, we will begin reading The Mortal Immortal. July 16, 1833. This is a memorable anniversary for me. On it, I complete my 323rd year. The wandering Jew, certainly not. More than 18 centuries have passed over his head. In comparison with him, I am a very young immortal. Am I, then, immortal? This is a question which I have asked myself by day and night for now 303 years, and yet cannot answer it. I detected a grey hair amidst my brown locks this very day. That surely signifies decay. Yet it may have remained concealed there for 300 years. Some persons have become entirely white-headed before 20 years of age. I will tell my story, and my reader shall judge for me. I will tell my story, and so contrive to pass some few hours of a long eternity, become so wearisome to me. Forever, can it be? To live forever? I have heard of enchantments, in which the victims were plunged into a deep sleep, to wake, after a hundred years, as fresh as ever. I have heard of the seven sleepers, thus to be immortal would not be so burdensome. But oh, the weight of never-ending time, the tedious passage of the still-succeeding hours. How happy was the fabled Nyorjahad, but to my task. All the world has heard of Cornelius Agrippa. His memory is as immortal as his arts have made me. All the world has also heard of his scholar, who, unawares, raised the foul fiend during his master's absence and was destroyed by him. The report, true or false, of this accident was attended with many inconveniences for the renowned philosopher. All his scholars at once deserted him. His servants disappeared. He had no one near him to put coals on his ever-burning fires while he slept, or to attend to the changeful colours of his medicines while he studied. Experiment after experiment failed, because one pair of hands was insufficient to complete them. The dark spirits laughed at him for not being able to retain a single mortal in his service. I was then very young, very poor, and very much in love. I had been for about a year the pupil of Cornelius, though I was absent when this accident took place. On my return, my friends implored me not to return to the alchemist's abode. I trembled as I listened to the dire tale they told. I required no second warning, and when Cornelius came and offered me a purse of gold, if I would remain under his roof, I felt as if Satan himself tempted me. My teeth chattered, my hair stood on end. I ran off as fast as my trembling knees would permit. My failing steps were directed whither, for two years, they had every evening been attracted. A gently bubbling spring of pure living waters, beside which lingered a dark-haired girl, whose beaming eyes were fixed on the path I was accustomed each night to tread. I cannot remember the hour when I did not love Bertha. We had been neighbours and playmates from infancy. Her parents, like mine, were of humble life, yet respectable. Our attachment had been a source of pleasure to them. In an evil hour, a malignant fever carried off both her father and mother, 
and Bertha became an orphan. She would have found a home beneath my paternal roof, but unfortunately, the old lady of the near castle, rich, childless and solitary, declared her intention to adopt her. Henceforth, Bertha was clad in silk, inhabited a marble palace, and was looked on as being highly favoured by fortune. But in her new situation, among her new associates, Bertha remained true to the friend of her humbler days. She often visited the cottage of my father, and when forbidden to go thither, she would stray towards the neighbouring wood, and meet me beside its shady fountain. She often declared that she owed no duty to her new protectress, equal in sanctity to that which bound us. Yet still I was too poor to marry, and she grew weary of being tormented on my account. She had a haughty but an impatient spirit, and grew angry at the obstacles that prevented our union. We met now after an absence, and she had been sorely beset while I was away. She complained bitterly, and almost reproached me for being poor. I replied hastily, I am honest if I am poor. Were I not, I might soon become rich. This exclamation produced a thousand questions. I feared to shock her by owning the truth, but she drew it from me, and then casting a look of disdain on me, she said, I protested that I had only dreaded to offend her, while she dwelt on the magnitude of the reward that I should receive. Thus encouraged, chained by her, led on by love and hope, laughing at my late fears, with quick steps and a light heart, I returned to accept the offers of the alchemist, and was instantly installed in my office. A year passed away. I became possessed of no insignificant sum of money. Custom had banished my fears. In spite of the most painful vigilance, I had never detected the trace of a cloven foot, nor was the studious silence of our abode ever disturbed by demoniac howls. I still continued my stolen interviews with Bertha, and hope dawned on me. Hope, but not perfect joy. For Bertha fancied that love and security were enemies, and her pleasure was to divide them in my bosom. Though true of heart, she was somewhat of a coquette in manner, and I was jealous as a Turk. She slighted me in a thousand ways, yet would never acknowledge herself to be in the wrong. She would drive me mad with anger, and then force me to beg her pardon. Sometimes she fancied that I was not sufficiently submissive, and then she had some story of a rival favoured by her protectress. She was surrounded by silk-clad youths, the rich and gay. What chance had the sad-robed scholar of Cornelius compared with these? On one occasion the philosopher made such large demands upon my time that I was unable to meet her as I was wont. He was engaged in some mighty work, and I was forced to remain day and night feeding his furnaces and watching his chemical preparations. Bertha waited for me in vain at the fountain. Her haughty spirit fired at this neglect, and when at last I stole out during the few short minutes allotted to me for slumber and hoped to be consoled by her, she received me with disdain, dismissed me in scorn, and vowed that any man should possess her hand rather than he who could not be in two places at once for her sake. She would be revenged, and truly she was. In my dingy retreat, I heard that she had been hunting, attended by Albert Hoffer. Albert Hoffer was favoured by her protectress, and the three passed in cavalcade before my smoky window. Methought that they mentioned my name. It was followed by a laugh of derision as her dark eyes glanced contemptuously towards my abode. Jealousy, with all its venom and all its misery, entered my breast. Now I should have torrented tears to think that I should never call her mine and anon I imprecated a thousand curses on her inconstancy. Yet still I must stir the fires of the alchemist, still attend on the changes of his unintelligible medicines. Cornelius had watched for three days and nights, nor closed his eyes. 
The progress of his alembics was slower than he expected, in spite of his anxiety. Sleep weighed upon his eyelids. Again and again he threw off drowsiness with more than human energy. Again and again it stole away his senses. He eyed his crucibles wistfully. Not ready yet, he murmured. Will another night pass before the work is accomplished? Winsy, you are vigilant. You are faithful. You have slept, my boy. You slept last night. Look at that glass vessel. The liquid it contains is of a soft rose color. The moment it begins to change its hue, awaken me. Till then I may close my eyes. First it will turn white, then emit golden flashes. But wait not till then. When the rose color fades, rouse me. I scarcely heard the last words, muttered as they were, in sleep. Even then, he did not quite yield to nature. Winsy, my boy, he again said, do not touch the vessel, do not put it to your lips. It is a filter, a filter to cure love. You would not cease to love your birth ever. Beware to drink. And he slept. His venerable head sunk on his breast, and I scarcely heard his regular breathing. For a few minutes I watched the vessel. The rosy hue of the liquid remained unchanged. Then my thoughts wandered. They visited the fountain, and dwelt on a thousand charming scenes never to be renewed. Never. Serpents and adders were in my heart as the word never half-formed itself on my lips. False girl. False and cruel. Never more would she smile on me, as that evening she smiled on Albert worthless, detested woman. I would not remain unrevenged. She should see Albert expire at her feet. She should die beneath my vengeance. She had smiled in disdain and triumph. She knew my wretchedness and her power. Yet what power had she? The power of exciting my hate, my utter scorn, my oh, all but indifference. Could I attain that? Could I regard her with careless eyes, transferring my rejected love to one fairer and more true? That were indeed a victory. A bright flash darted before my eyes. I had forgotten the medicine of the adept. I gazed on it with wonder, flashes of admirable beauty, more bright than those which the diamond emits when the sun's razor on it, glanced from the surface of the liquid. An odour, the most fragrant and grateful, stole over my sense. The vessel seemed one globe of living radiance, lovely to the eye and most inviting to the taste. The first thought, instinctively inspired by the greater sense, was, I will, I must drink. I raised the vessel to my lips. It will cure me of love, of torture. Already I had quaffed half the most delicious liquor ever tasted by the palate of man, when the philosopher stirred. I started. I dropped the glass. The fluid flamed and glanced along the floor while I felt Cornelius's gripe at my throat, as he shrieked aloud. Wretch! You have destroyed the labour of my life! The philosopher was totally unaware that I had drunk any portion of his drug. His idea was, and I gave a tacit assent to it, that I had raised the vessel from curiosity, and that, frightened at its brightness and the flashes of intense light it gave forth, I had let it fall. I never undeceived him. The fire of the medicine was quenched, the fragrance died away, it grew calm, as a philosopher should under the heaviest trials, and dismissed me to rest. I will not attempt to describe the sleep of glory and bliss which bathed my soul in paradise during the remaining hours of that memorable night. Words would be faint and shallow types of my enjoyment, of the gladness that possessed my bosom when I woke. I trod air, my thoughts were in heaven. Earth appeared heaven and my inheritance upon it was to be one trance of delight. 
This is it, to be cured of love, I thought. I will see Bertha this day, and she will find her lover cold and regardless. Too happy to be disdainful, yet how utterly indifferent to her. The hours danced away. The philosopher, secure that he had once succeeded, and believing that he might again, began to concoct the same medicine once more. He was shut up with his books and drugs, and I had a holiday. I dressed myself with care. I looked in an old but polished shield, which served me for a mirror. Methought my good looks had wonderfully improved. I hurried round the precincts of the town, joy in my soul, the beauty of heaven and earth around me. I turned my steps towards the castle. I could look on its lofty turrets with lightness of heart, for I was cured of love. My Bertha saw me afar off, as I came up the avenue. I know not what sudden impulse animated her bosom, but at the sight she sprung with a light fawn-like bound down the marble steps, and was hastening towards me. But I had been perceived by another person. The old high-born hag who called herself her protectress, and was her tyrant, had seen me also. She hobbled, panting up the terrace. A page, as ugly as herself, held up her train, and fanned her as she hurried along and stopped my fair girl with a... How now, my bold mistress? Whither so fast? Back to your cage. Hawks are abroad. Bertha clasped her hands. Her eyes were still bent on my approaching figure. I saw the contest. How I abhorred the old crone who checked the kind impulses of my Bertha's softening heart. Hitherto, respect for her rank had caused me to avoid the lady of the castle. Now I disdained such trivial considerations. I was cured of love and lifted above all human fears. I hastened forwards and soon reached the terrace. How lovely Bertha looked, her eyes flashing fire, her cheeks glowing with impatience and anger. She was a thousand times more graceful and charming than ever. I no longer loved. Oh no, I adored, worshipped, idolised her. She had that morning been persecuted, with more than usual vehemence, to consent to an immediate marriage with my rival. She was reproached with the encouragement that she had shown him. She was threatened with being turned out of the doors with disgrace and shame. Her proud spirit rose in arms at the threat, but when she remembered the scorn that she had heaped upon me, and how, perhaps, she had thus lost one whom she now regarded as her only friend, she wept with remorse and rage. At that moment, I appeared. Oh, Winsy! she exclaimed. Take me to your mother's cart. Swiftly let me leave the detested luxuries and wretchedness of this noble dwelling. Take me to poverty and happiness. I clasped her in my arms with transport. The old lady was speechless with fury and broke forth into invective only when we were far on our road to my natal cottage. My mother received the fair fugitive escaped from a gilt cage to nature and liberty with tenderness and joy. My father, who loved her, welcomed her heartily. It was a day of rejoicing, which did not need the addition of the celestial potion of the alchemist to steep me in delight. Soon after this eventful day, I became the husband of Bertha. I ceased to be the scholar of Cornelius, but I continued his friend. I was quite grateful to him for having, unaware, cured me that delicious draught of a divine elixir, which, instead of curing me of love, sad cure, solitary and joyless remedy for evils. It seemed blessings to my the memory. It inspired me with courage and resolution, thus winning for me an inestimable treasure in my Bertha. I often call to mind that period of trance-like inebriation with wonder. The drink of Cornelius had not fulfilled the task for which he affirmed that it had been prepared, but its effects were more potent and blissful than words can express. They had faded by degrees, yet they lingered long and painted life in hues of splendour. Bertha often wondered at my lightness of heart and unaccustomed gaiety. 
though before I had been rather serious or even sad in my disposition. She loved me the better, my cheerful temper, and our days were winged by joy. Five years afterwards, I was suddenly summoned to the bedside of the dying Cordelius. He had sent for me in haste, conjuring my instant presence. I found him stretched on his pallet, enfeebled even to death. All of life that yet remained animated his piercing eyes, and they were fixed on a glass vessel full of a roseate liquid. Behold, he said in a broken and inward voice. The vanity of human wishes. A second time my hopes are about to be crowned. A second time they are destroyed. Look at that liquor. You remember five years ago I had prepared the same, with the same success. Then as now my thirsting lips expected to taste the immortal elixir. You dashed it from me, and at present it is too late. He spoke with difficulty and fell back on his pillow. I could not help saying, how, revered master, can a cure for love restore you to life? A faint smile gleamed across his face as I listened earnestly to his scarcely intelligible answer. A cure for love and for all things, the elixir of immortality. Ah, if now I might drink, I should live forever. As he spoke, a golden flash gleamed from the fluid, a well-remembered fragrance stole over the air. He raised himself, all weak as he was, and strengthening miraculously to re-enter his frame. He stretched forth his hand. A large explosion startled me. A ray of fire shot up from the elixir, and the glass vessel which contained it was shivered to atoms. I turned my eyes towards the philosopher. He had fallen back. His eyes were glassy. His features rigid. He was dead. But I lived, and was to live forever. So said the unfortunate alchemist and for a few days I believed his words. I remembered the glorious drunkenness that had followed my stolen draught. I reflected on the change I had felt in my frame, in my soul, the bounding elasticity of the one, the buoyant lightness of the other. I surveyed myself in a mirror, and could perceive no change in my features during the space of the five years which had elapsed. I remembered the radiant hues and grateful scent of that delicious beverage, worthy the gift it was capable of bestowing. I was then, Immortal. A few days after, I laughed at my credulity. The old proverb that a prophet is least regarded in his own country was true with respect to me and my defunct master. I loved him as a man, I respected him as a sage, but I derided the notion that he could command the powers of darkness, and laughed at the superstitious fears with which he was regarded by the vulgar. He was a wise philosopher, but had no acquaintance with any spirits but those clad in flesh and blood. Science was simply human, and human science, I soon persuaded myself, could never conquer nature's laws, so far as to imprison the soul forever within its carnal habitation. Cornelius had brewed a soul-refreshing drink, more inebriating than wine, sweeter and more fragrant than any fruit. It possessed probably strong medicinal powers, imparting gladness to the heart and vigour to the limbs, but its effects would wear out. Already were they diminished in my frame. I was a lucky fellow to have quaffed health and joyous spirits, and perhaps long life, at my master's hands. But my good fortune ended there. Longevity was far different from immortality. I continued to entertain this belief for many years. Sometimes a thought stole across me. Was the alchemist indeed deceived? But my natural credence was that I should meet the fate of all the children of Adam at my appointed time, 
a little late, but still at a natural age. Yet it was certain that I retained a wonderfully youthful look. I was laughed at for my vanity in consulting the mirror so often, but I consulted it in vain. My brow was entrenched, my cheeks, my eyes, my whole person continued as untarnished as in my twentieth year. I was troubled. I looked at the faded beauty of Bertha. I seemed more like her son. By degrees our neighbours began to make similar observations, and I found at last that I went by the name of the scholar bewitched. Bertha herself grew uneasy. She became jealous and peevish, and at length she began to question me. We had no children. We were all in all to each other, and though as she grew older her vivacious spirit became a little allied to ill temper, and her beauty sadly diminished, I cherished her in my heart as the mistress I had idolised, the wife I had sought and won with such perfect love. At last our situation became intolerable. Bertha was fifty, I twenty years of age. I had, in very shame, in some measure adopted the habits of a more advanced age. I no longer mingled in the dance when the young and gay, but my heart bounded along with them while I restrained my feet. On a sorry figure I cut among the nesters of our village, but before the time I mentioned, things were altered. We were universally shunned. We were, at least I was, reported to have kept up an iniquitous acquaintance with some of my former master's supposed friends. Poor Bertha was pitied but deserted. I was regarded with horror and distestation. What was to be done? We sat by our winter fire. Poverty had made itself felt, for none would buy the produce of my farm. And often I had been forced to journey twenty miles to some place where I was not known to dispose of our property. It is true we had saved something for an evil day. That day was come. We sat by our lone fireside, the old-hearted youth and his antiquated wife. Again, Bertha insisted on knowing the truth. She recapitulated all she had ever heard said about me and added her own observations. She conjured me to cast off the spell. She described how much more comely grey hairs were than my chestnut locks. She descanted on the reverence and respect due to age, how preferable to the slight regard paid to mere children. Could I imagine that the despicable gifts of youth and good looks outweighed disgrace, hatred and scorn? Nay, in the end I should be burnt as a dealer in the black art, while she to whom I had not deigned to communicate any portion of my good fortune might be stoned as my accomplice. At length she insinuated that I must share my secret with her, and bestow on her like benefits to those I myself enjoyed, but she would denounce me, and then she burst into tears. Thus beset, methought it was the best way to tell the truth. I revealed it as tenderly as I could, and spoke only of a very long life, not of immortality, which representation, indeed, coincided best with my own ideas. When I ended, I rose and said, And now, my Bertha, will you denounce the lover of your youth? You will not, I know. But it is too hard, my poor wife, that you should suffer from my ill luck and the accursed arts of Cornelius. I will leave you. You have wealth enough, and friends will return in my absence. I will go, young as I seem and strong as I am. I can work and gain my bread among strangers, unsuspected and unknown. I loved you in youth. God is my witness that I would not desert you in age, but that your safety and happiness require it. I took my cap and moved towards the door. In a moment, Bertha's arms were round my neck and her lips were pressed to mine. No, my husband, may Winsy, she said. You shall not go alone. Take me with you. We will remove from this place, and, as you say, among strangers we shall be unsuspected and safe. I am not so very old as quite to shame you, my Winsy, and I dare say the charm will soon wear off, and with the blessing of God you will become more elderly-looking, as is fitting. 
you shall not leave me. I returned the good soul's embrace heartily. I will not, my Arthur, but for your sake I had not thought of such a thing. I will be your true faithful husband while you are spared to me, and do my duty by you to the last. The next day we prepared secretly for our emigration. We were obliged to make great pecuniary sacrifices. It could not be helped. We realised some sufficient, at least, to maintain us while Bertha lived, and without saying adieu to anyone, quitted our native country to take refuge in a remote part of Western France. It was a cruel thing to transport poor Bertha from her native village and the friends of her youth to a new country, new language, new customs. The strange secret of my destiny rendered this removal immaterial to me, but I compassionated her deeply and was glad to perceive that she found compensation for her misfortunes in a variety of little ridiculous circumstances. Away from all telltale chroniclers, she sought to decrease the apparent disparity of her ages by a thousand feminine arts, rouge, youthful dress, and assumed juvenility and manner. I could not be angry. Did not I myself wear a mask? Why quarrel with hers because it was less successful? I grieved deeply when I remembered that this was my Bertha, whom I had loved so fondly, and one with such transport, the dark-eyed, dark-haired girl, with smiles of enchanting archness and a step like a fawn, this mincing, simpering, jealous old woman. I would have revered her grey locks and withered cheeks, but thus it was my work I knew, but I did not the less deplore this type of human weakness. The jealousy never slept. Chief occupation was to discover that, in spite of outward appearances, I was myself growing old. I very believe that the poor soul loved me truly in her heart, but never had woman so tormenting a motive as going fondness. She would discern wrinkles in my face and decrepitude in my walk while I bounded along in youthful vigour, the youngest looking of twenty youths. I never dared address another woman. On one occasion, fancying that the belle of the village regarded me with favouring eyes, she bought me a grey wig. Her constant discourse among her acquaintances was that though I looked so young, there was ruin at work within my frame, and she affirmed that the worst symptom about me was my apparent health. My youth was a disease, she said, and I ought at all times to prepare, if not for a sudden and awful death, at least to awake some morning white-headed and bowed down with all the marks of advanced years. I let her talk, often joined in her conjectures. Her warnings chimed in with my never-ceasing speculations concerning my slate, and I took an earnest, though painful, interest in listening to all that her quick wit and excited imagination could say on the subject. Why dwell on these minute circumstances? We lived on for many years. Bertha became bedrid and paralytic. I nursed her as a mother might a child. She grew peevish and still harped upon one string of how long I should survive her. It has ever been a source of consolation to me that I performed my duty scrupulously towards her. She had been mine in youth, she was mine in age, and at last, when I heaped the sod over her corpse, I wept to feel that I had lost all that really bound me to humanity. Since then, how many have been my cares and woes, how few and empty my enjoyments. I pause here in my history. I will pursue it no further. A sailor without rudder or compass tossed on a stormy sea. A traveller lost on a widespread heath without landmark or star to him. Such have I been, more lost, more hopeless than either. An erring ship, a gleam from some far cot, may save them. But I have no beacon except the hope of death. Death, mysterious, ill-visaged friend of weak humanity. Why alone of all mortals have you cast me from your sheltering fold? Oh, for the peace of the grave, the deep silence of the iron-bound tomb, that thought would cease to work in my brain. 
and my heart beat no more with emotions varied only by new forms of sadness. Am I immortal? I return to my first question. In the first place, is it not more probable that the beverage of the alchemist was fraught rather with longevity than eternal life? Such is my hope. And then, be it remembered, that I only drank half of the potion prepared by him. Was not the whole necessary to complete the charm? To have drained half the elixir of mortality is but to be half mortal. My forever is thus truncated and null. But again, who shall number the years of the half of eternity? I often try to imagine by what rule the infinite may be divided. Sometimes I fancy age advancing upon me. One grey hair I have found. Fool, do I lament? Yes, the fear of age and death often creeps coldly into my heart. And the more I live, the more I dread death, even while I abhor life. Such an enigma as man. Born to perish when he wars, as I do, against the established laws of his nature. But for this anomaly of feeling, surely I might die. The medicine of the alchemist would not be proof against fire, sword, and the strangling waters. I have gazed upon the blue depths of many a placid lake, and the tumultuous rushing of many a mighty river, and have said, peace inhabits those waters, yet I have turned my steps away to live another day. I have asked myself whether suicide would be a crime in one to whom thus only the portals of the other world could be opened. I have done all, except presenting myself as a soldier or duelist, an object of destruction to my, no, not to my fellow mortals. And therefore I have shrunk away. They are not my fellows. The inextinguishable power of life in my frame and their ephemeral existence places us wide as the poles asunder. I could not raise a hand against the meanest or the most powerful among them. Thus I have lived on for many a year, alone and weary of myself, desirous of death, yet never dying, immortal, immortal. Neither ambition nor avarice can enter my mind, and the ardent love that gnaws at my heart, never to be returned, never to find an equal on which to expend itself, lives there only to torment me. This very day I conceived a design by which I may end all, without self-slaughter, without making another man a cain, an expedition which mortal frame can never survive even ended with the youth and strength that inhabits mine. Thus I shall put my immortality to the test, and rest forever, or return the wonder and benefactor of the human species. Before I go, a miserable vanity has caused me to pen these pages. I would not die and leave no name behind. Three centuries have passed since I quaffed the fatal beverage. Another year shall not elapse before encountering gigantic dangers. Warring with the powers of frost in the home, beset by famine, toil and tempest. I yield this body, too tenacious a cage for a soul which thirsts for freedom, to the destructive elements of air and water. Or if I survive, my name shall be recorded as one of the most famous among the sons of men. And my task achieved, I shall adopt more resolute means, and by scattering and annihilating the atoms that compose my frame, set at liberty the life imprisoned within, and so cruelly prevented from soaring from this dim earth to a sphere more congenial to its immortal essence. We said we were getting away from Frankenstein, but actually she imagines an end for this character quite like the end of the creature in Frankenstein that he goes to, what did, what were the words? Uh, war, warring with the powers of frost in their home. So yeah, going to one of the poles, um, probably the North Pole, but I don't know. 
one would imagine, at least at that point. <laughs> yeah, so this is obviously yeah. some quite a number of years after Frankenstein, but it's still there are resonances. I just wanted to apologize for um coughing a little bit or needing a cough sweet because my voice is going a little bit. But it's that time of year, isn't it? I think mine is kind of really uh, the vocal fry is <laughs> real yeah. today. But no, I find it interesting, and obviously she's still engaging in these um, kind of scientific discourses, like all of the the amount of times that atoms are mentioned. Yeah, definitely. And atoms were pretty new concept, I want to say, at yeah. that point. So I guess the Greeks had the idea of atoms, but um, it was in 1800 when John Dalton reinduced the concept of the atom as sort of this basic building block of matter. Um, so yeah, that's not not that long ago. It's a you know 30ish years, which in in scientific ideas is pretty short, especially when yeah. I mean, it would take about it would it would take a bit for like the the scientific concepts to trickle out into popular culture. So this is, I mean, that's what we see happening. Here. Yeah, like obviously, there's elements of how she describes atoms that are, you know, not how they work, um, as we understand it now. But for the time, it seemed yeah. obviously it was a philosophical concept first, but it's interesting. And I want to say that um, the way that this character talks about atoms is actually very similar to the way that Thomas Edison talks about. Um, so in his in his biography, which was published after his death, Thomas Edison had a, a couple of chapters about what he thinks happens to people after they die, um, because he's writing in the midst of the spiritualist movement when people are like talking, thinking they're talking to ghosts, etc., yeah. So he he says, you know, it's unclear what exactly gives life, but like these, uh, what does he call it? I mean, he talks about it like these little kind of clusters of things that give life and disperse when we die um, in a very similar way to the way that, sh that this character talks about atoms. So, and that was, I mean, published in, I want to say, the 1920s. And so, yeah. Yeah, certainly much later, if not you know, a century later. I think another thing that is really interesting to me about early sci-fi is the way that it um, sort of engages with the environment and the landscape. So here, as with Frankenstein, we have this concept of uh, the North Pole or one of the poles as this place where life can't be sustained, this sort of um, otherworldly wilderness that uh, kind of like space has taken that, uh, that role in our fiction, in our science fiction now, but it was the poles back then. And I don't know, I'm just really struck by that 
given that right now the glaciers are melting and you know this 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 place that's sort of um inviolate and inhospitable is just like disappearing right i don't know yeah it's interesting that so much of this very early sci-fi is so interested in the poles when that is the site where we see the most dramatic influences of climate change i guess um yeah yeah certainly changes readings of you know the blazing world or frankenstein or the mm-hmm. mortal immortal maybe a cautionary tale for us as we imagine shooting outward into space like everything you know like or as as like it becomes technologically possible to colonize planets like what what will we be destroying as we do these things right i don't know but yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a couple of different, very different samples of Mary Shelley's writing. She had a lot of range. She could she she wrote widely and well. I think. Yeah, and I think that was a. I mean, there was a bit when I was reading this that I had a similar. Um, reaction to as you did with the the bit about Swiss people not being suited to slavery mm-hmm. or the canoe when she's talking about Bertha and saying I was some she I don't know why I'm saying I was she was somewhat of a coquette manner and I was jealous as a Turk that really mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. I was reading it and I was thinking am I really gonna read these words aloud yeah and I wonder if that's a I've never heard that phrase before but I don't know whether it was common it was common yeah it was it's it's basically a cliche I um I don't know like that she thought that much about using it but uh definitely orientalism at work and I think I think I have a short video I can share if you've never uh, heard about Edward Said's Orientalism or uh, heard it being applied to um, yes, of the long 19th I have century. Heard it before. I don't know why I said I've never heard it before. No, sorry. Um, I, I know you have, <laughs> or I was assuming you had yeah. that, but no, li- I, listeners, listeners I, you may not have encountered. I hadn't, and okay. I have. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. because it's so foundational to everything we do <laughs> that you're like... <laughs> It's just a thing. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Every undergraduate literature course is going to have, well, I would hope would have that text on it. Yeah. At some point. But yeah, that's another, that's another way in which, you know, we can't impose our modern like morals because, but at the same time, we're not saying, yeah, that's cool and fine. Yeah. But also, yeah, like it's all a stereotype. All we can do at this distance is use it as a teaching and learning moment, right? Like, we can't go back in time and make it better. We can't, like, I mean, it's complicated. Life is complicated. But we can also just say that, yeah, uh, 
actually there were people back then who would have been aware of these kinds of things and tried to modify their behavior. Um, and like Mary and Percy were aware of some things like the fact that sugar yeah. was a product of slavery, but not aware of others. And so, yeah, it's messy, but w- what we can do is point it out. Right. Yeah. Which is still the same. Yeah. It's always been this and it's always, I would suspect, going to be like this where no one person is going to be a paragon of morality and everyone is working on some degree of probably ignorance. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's really important to point out that it's not a thing where you can say, oh, it's 1833 and no one knew any better. Right. Definitely. Because I think that is a common thing that gets said. And it's like some people did, and obviously, as you say, Percy and Mary were aware of the impact of sugar on slavery, but mm-hmm. had a bit of a blind spot for this, apparently, or at least Mary did. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Hi, future Eleanor here. Just tapping in to say it's just occurred to me while editing that the term blind spot is itself, you know, comes from a position of privileging people with sight and that is not cool i'm going to leave it in as an example of how no one's perfect i will try to be better in future but yeah um so i think that concludes our coverage of the life and work of mary shelley do we have any last things that we should add no i think that's I think we've covered it pretty um, comprehensively. (laughs) Yeah, more so than usual. Um, Okay, well, if you... Oh, I guess I should say that um, our episode on Marie Corelli will be coming on the last Friday of next month. So things got bumped back a little bit since we did an extra deep dive into Mary Shelley. Um, But that's just a few weeks away. So... um, We hope you enjoyed today's readings and thank you for listening. Yeah, and those Mary Corelli episodes should be without some technical difficulties because we are going to be recording them in the same room, which is just not, has not ever happened, which is very exciting. Um, Yeah, definitely. Just another reason why they, you know, can't happen until we've actually been in the same room. Mm hmm. Yes, so we will be coming with our first live recorded, I guess, our face-to-face <laughs> recorded episodes ever. <laughs> yeah. Our first recording without thousands of miles and some technological mm-hmm. adventures between us. Knock on wood about the tech. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that to look forward to. And in the meantime, we've got plenty of resources in the show notes to be tinkering along with. Absolutely. So take a look at our website if you haven't. We're just adding things to that all the time. Um, And yeah, until next time. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbill. 
The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com support us to donate. Every dollar helps provide us with things like web hosting, subscriptions to research databases, and recording equipment, which all helps us bring more content to you. The music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. Our closing music this season is a 1911 recording of Come Josephine and My Flying Machine, performed by Ada Jones and Billy Murray, and made available by the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archive. You have destroyed the labor of my life!